Gracious God, we ask that you would speak to us today. You would encourage us and challenge us, that you would help us reflect on who you are and who you've made us to be, and that you would change us, make us more like your son, Jesus. We pray these things in his strong name. Amen. Uh, it was once written, I would like to buy $3 of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to, to make me have to love, my, love the stranger or to have to work alongside the desperate. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. But of course, that's not how it works. Not least because it assumes that God can be had, missing the much larger point that God is a who. That said, I wonder, do we sometimes see God as being that small? Do we see God as one who needs to be managed or massaged or manipulated? Do we see God as simply a means to an end? And while obviously the answer to all of those questions is supposed to be no, the reality is that that's not always how we would answer that. And in this, I think we are much like the crowds on that first Palm Sunday more excited that we might get what we wanted than excited about the who that has come into our midst. We get so focused on that we might be saved from that we forget who we are being saved And so today, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into these ideas, and we're going to look at a different triumphal entry that happened about a thousand years before to see if we can't learn a little something about today. But before we get there, let me remind you where we are and where we're going. In our Lenten series, we've been looking at the person of David, who was known as a man after God's own heart. And as we've been talking about, that occurs on, on two different levels. David's heart is aligned with God's heart. And David's heart is aimed towards God's heart. David's aligned with God's heart. It, it's built in the same way. It, it feels the same kinds of things. It's passionate about the same kinds of purposes. It's the same kind of heart. It's aligned with God. But David's heart is also aimed toward God, loves God, pursues God, longs for God, follows after God. And as we think about those things, we recognize that our hearts could be a little bit more aligned with God's heart and could be aimed a little better towards God's heart. But we may need to reset and even reorder our loves such that God could carry a greater gravitational pull for our hearts. And so as we get started on this, I'll invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6 as we rewind our story a little bit. This passage takes place after David is king, after David has taken Jerusalem as his capital, but before he tries to build a house for God and before the whole Bathsheba incident from last week. 
David's plan for today is to move the Ark of the Covenant from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem in order to kind of consolidate the religious, cultural, military, and political powers all in the same place, all in his new capital city. That said, this may not be as easy as we'd first expect. To understand this, we we have to think through or review a couple of ideas first. And the first of these is the idea of holiness, and more particularly God's holiness. And to talk about this, I want us to have kind of two different images in our mind. The first is the image that, uh, imagine for a second, if you needed to handle or move a priceless piece of history or art. So for some reason, you were tapped to be the mover or cleaner of the Declaration of Independence or the Mona Lisa. For some reason, they, they, like, you won the, I don't know what, for some reason, you were the one who has to clean the Declaration of Independence or the Mona Lisa. Think about the steps that you would take, the rules you would follow, the way that you would do that. I imagine in your mind's eye, you're not eating Cheetos while you're doing that. You wouldn't be wearing your paint clothes. I imagine you wouldn't be casual or careless or hurried. Instead, you would want to be at your best, your cleanest, most put together, so that you can show respect and reverence, so that you can show care and concern, so that you can show that you know how to behave. Because any inappropriate or inattentive or irreverent actions could have permanent and disastrous consequences. Okay, that's the first image we need when we talk about holiness. But now we move toward God's holiness, and the image changes just a little bit. Now imagine that I need you to move this giant box of really old TNT and nitroglycerin and explosives and matches and and detonators from here to here. I'm sure they're stored in their well, but it's a really old box, and I didn't pack it. And I need you to move that box from here to all the way really outside somewhere. And again, I want you to think about how you would do that. You probably wouldn't want to be hopped up on coffee and energy drinks because you wouldn't want to be jittery. You probably aren't listening to music or yelling at kids or worrying about work. You're not overly distracted. You aren't going to be casual and you aren't going to be careless and you aren't going to be hurried. In fact, you are probably moving very quietly and very slowly and very intentionally, right? Because, again, any inappropriate or inattentive or irreverent actions could have permanent and disastrous consequences. Now we can finally start moving toward our passage uh, because in a very similar way, and ironically for very similar reasons, there were rules and protocols and behaviors explicitly identified for the approach and handling and movement of the Ark of the Covenant. Again, you wouldn't move the Ark of the Covenant while eating Cheetos. I mean, that would have been a no-no even back then, despite the goodness. In fact, it's detailed out in Exodus 25 and number 7 that only specific and qualified people were allowed to move the Ark, 
and only in specific times and only in specific ways. Namely, it, it is to be carried by hand or, I guess, shoulder on poles by priests, and not just any priest, but a specific family of priests. Because even here, any inappropriate, inattentive, or irreverent actions could have permanent and disastrous consequences, which again, might seem harsh, but if you were moving the Mona Lisa or a box of explosives, there, there would be a reason for being intentional and having those rules in place. Now, with all of that as background, we are finally ready to read 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Baalal in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, son of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God <coughs> struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day the place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. 
going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Amen. Ouch, there at the end. Um, But let's recap, because this one has a few strange things in it. First, we have to understand what happened to Uzzah. David is working to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and as we know, this is a big deal. This is important spiritually, it's important culturally, it's important politically. This is the most important, most sacred, most valuable treasure we have. This is the presence, the home, the seat, the throne of God. And so we want to do this right. David musters 30,000 soldiers as military escort and honor guard. And it's not bad to think through the logistics of an undertaking like that. 30,000 people is a lot of people. This wasn't done casually. This wasn't done haphazardly. This was done very intentionally. They get a brand new cart, load up the ark, and off they go with a great deal of singing and fanfare. And all of that sounds great until we remember that God has already told us how to move the ark by hand on poles. You have to carry it. And as it turns out, that matters. Well, the oxen stumble a bit, the cart jostles a bit, the ark slides a bit, and Uzzah puts his hands out to steady everything. He touches the ark and he's struck down dead. And while that seems pretty harsh, a little unjust, we also do need to remember that that never should have happened in the first place, because this isn't who or how the ark is supposed to be treated, how it's supposed to be carried. Well, David is angry that things didn't go as planned. He's a little afraid because God didn't do what he expected, not to mention this is a little bit humbling and embarrassing and confusing and startling. And David realizes that something isn't right, so he retreats to kind of regroup and replan. A few months later, they try and make this 10-mile trip again. And notice what has changed now. First, they're now carrying the ark. So right off the bat, this is a better start than the last one. Second, it seems like David has made a little bit more preparations. He's got a special tent set up in Jerusalem already. He himself is wearing kind of holy vestments, kind of holy robes, if you will. And then finally, we find David worshiping and sacrificing to the Lord with great abandon. And in all of this, David just seems to be much more aware of and present before God, treating God as as God, as God deserves to be treated. Of course, that's not how everyone interprets David's behavior, because one of his wives, who also is the daughter of the former King Saul, is not so pleased. David, you're the king. Act like it. You're embarrassing yourself. This is shameful. McCall is demeaned and disgraced by David's dancing. 
And we can surmise that McCall is worried that she will be seen as less if he, the king, is seen as less. David, if you don't carry yourself as a king, then no one is going to respect my status. She's worried about what others will think, and yet missing what matters. Imagine that, being in the midst of a celebration, in the midst of worship, in the midst of God's presence, and yet not just unengaged, not just unmoved, but, but unaware, unaware of God's presence. But what does all this have to do with us? I mean, the passage is interesting enough, albeit a little bit odd, but, but what does it actually have to do with our wives? Yet I wonder if, if maybe we would find ourselves somewhere in this passage. I wonder if you can relate to any of these characters. Maybe some of the characters you shouldn't be able to relate to. I, I wonder if, if this was a, a huge procession of the Ark of the Covenant, where would you be? Do you relate to Uzzah? Do you relate to McCall? Do you relate to David? I mean, the idea of trying to manage God and manage the ark and make sure everything goes just the right way, that, that, that does sound a little Presbyterian at times. So maybe we can relate to him. Of course, McCall, being somewhere away watching the whole festivities and not, not, not dancing or doing anything crazy, that also sometimes sounds a little Presbyterian. Can we relate to her? Or maybe David? It's interesting, they all seem to have a different awareness of and response to God. And I wonder, where, where do we find ourselves in there? And what can we learn? And so let's go back through those three people again and see how we might long for God better. And we start with Uzzah. We know that Uzzah is one of the sons of Abinadab, and the sense we get, he's probably some kind of priest. We also know from the context that the Ark of the Covenant has been at their house for 20 years. And so on the one hand, we should be very aware of the rules of how to deal with the Ark because we're, it's been 20 years. On the other hand, 20 years is a long time. And I wonder if Uzzah has grown a little too familiar with the Ark. I wonder if the ark has become kind of more of a, a token, a, a totem, a tool. I wonder if this is simply a, a relic that we have to keep and clean and care for. And because of that, I, I wonder if Uzzah ever felt like it was his job to maintain and manage and sometimes manipulate God. Of course, we might sometimes fall prey to that too. You get so focused on what we're calling the box that we lose sight of the God that the box represents. Uh, get so caught up in, in going through the motions that we forget who gave us those motions to go through. Get so absorbed with trying to follow the rules that we forget the one who is the reason for and aim of those rules. 
I wonder if sometimes we get too familiar with God, too, too casual, too glib, which is why we can say things like, I'll, I'll get to God when I have time. I'll deal with God when I have the space. I'll, I'll do for God when I have energy. Because we put ourselves, our schedules, our priorities, our lives so far ahead of God's. It's why we can forget God. It's why we can ignore God. It's why we can avoid God. Even while we also say we believe. God sets up the rules and the guardrails to help us learn to rely on Him more and better, to, to learn to and lean on and live in Him more and better. But sometimes we view these as merely part of the pomp and circumstance, the ritual and the, the rigmarole, and we lose sight of God in our midst. I wonder if that's what happened to Uzzah. And I wonder if you can relate to Uzzah. Then we get to McCall. She is a complex figure if ever there was one. She is the youngest daughter of King Saul, uh, and she was in love with young David long ago. Later, she was offered to David as bait, I mean bride, if he killed 200 Philistines, which he did, and so she became his wife. She helps David escape, falls out of favor with her father, the king, as David also falls out of favor with Saul, the king, at which point Saul gives her in marriage to someone else because he's the king and he can just do that. Then Saul dies, and as David starts consolidating power, he has Michal taken from her current husband so that she can be his wife again. All that to say, Michal knew politics. She lived Politics. She knew palace intrigue. She knew to watch the changing of the winds. She knew that perception and status and popularity and honor matters because her life was frequently turned upside down by a changing of those same winds. But therefore, what she saw in all of this was threat and opportunity. There was a not-so-subtle calculation being made about who's going up and who's coming down, and everything around her simply played a role in that calculus. But therefore, David's behavior isn't just embarrassing. It is a problem. What happens if he falls out of favor? What happens if the people turn against him? What happens if he falls from grace? What happens to me? And God simply becomes a tool to be used to increase one's reputation and influence. And in that, God becomes valuable only insofar as God is useful. But in this, I wonder, sometimes is this where we find ourselves as well? I wonder if there are times when we see God as simply a means to an end. I will worship and serve, not out of obedience or gratitude, but, but for what I get. I'll be good so that God will bless me. I will follow and be faithful as long as it serves my purposes. I wonder if that's what happened to McCall. I wonder if we can relate. 
Which brings us at last to David. David isn't trying to manipulate God. David isn't playing games with God. David isn't pretending that God is near. But David is striving to live in and before God. For David, God is. Which then shapes all of his interactions. And that's not to say that that causes David to deal with God using kind of kid gloves, because clearly he doesn't. If anything, David is a little too real and too raw before God, as his emotions and his passions sometimes get the better of him. I mean, in this passage alone, he is angry with God, he is afraid of God, later he's ecstatic and joyful before God. But in it all, he's always 100% authentic to God. He's always aware of God, always attending to God, always open to God, which then shapes what he does, who he is. For David, God isn't a religion or a task or a tool or a concept. God is, and therefore God must be reckoned with and addressed and worshiped. And because God is God, that must be done with reverence and humility and authenticity, with, with our whole being, because anything less means we're playing with fire. I like what Eugene Peterson says about this passage and says about worship in general. He writes, sometimes I think that all religious sites should be posted with signs reading, beware the God. Danger signs should be conspicuously placed as they are at nuclear power stations. He writes this because, of course, sometimes we are a little too casual, a little too... From, sometimes we forget that God is God. Sometimes we think that God is a, a faraway friend. We can call on if we need something, but, but isn't always relevant for our day-to-day -day lives. We're still, I think, sometimes we think of God as kind of our our imaginary friend, there to comfort us, but could just as easily be ignored or overlooked or forgotten. But that's not how David sees it. That's not how David treats or interacts with God, because David knows God, loves God, longs for God. For David, God is always present and always real and always holy. And that's what makes David who he is. I wonder if we could relate to God in this way too. I wonder, if, I wonder if that would reorient and reshape and reprioritize the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this day that we celebrate the triumphal entry when Jesus came into Jerusalem. And we thank you that we can study the passage where you, the, the Ark of the Covenant, was brought into the, that same city, also with great fanfare. Though we confess sometimes, Lord, we, we aren't, aren't good at celebrating like that. We aren't good at being authentic before you. And so we pray that you would continue to send your Spirit to stir up our hearts, that we might be filled and changed by you. 
Lord, soften our hearts that we might be more like David, that we might be all that we are before all that you are, still remembering that you are holy and that you are powerful, but that also you are good. Lord, reshape our view of you that you might reshape who we are. And we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.